Hey there, this is Liz Lash, and you're listening to Entering the Bar, a podcast on life and the law. Us lawyers may have passed the bar, but at the end of the day, we often find ourselves entering the bar, not only to relax, but to fetch about clients, cases, and the like. What's it like to live life as a lawyer? That's what we're here to talk about. And since we're lawyers, here's your first disclaimer. We're not here to give you legal advice. Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. And today we have as a guest Justin Braun. He is a Bronx DA. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. So Justin, I think, is in the appeals division of the Bronx DA's office. That's right. Um, yes. So Justin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work? Okay, so I'm a uh, supervising attorney in the appeals bureau of the Bronx DA's office. And that means that currently, uh, in addition to my own appellate work, I am supervising other assistants with theirs. So that's at the state level, the federal level, all kinds of different. There's direct appeals, collateral attacks, habeas wow. on the federal and state level. There's, there's all sorts of things. So we do a lot of writing, a lot of research, a lot of novel issues that, believe it or not, have never come up or come up in strange contexts that we've never seen before. And it's great. And, and then we also get to liaison ourselves out to trial division two, if we want, and, uh, and do some trial stuff too. So it's, it's a really wide experience. Oh, that's great. So I think you mentioned that you had a couple of cases, I think, that went up to the New York State Court of Appeals. I've been at the Court of Appeals about half a dozen times. Wow and uh, the Second Circuit twice. I, I had one case where when I first started in the office, I actually second sat the trial, and then that case ended up you know, with a conviction, a murder conviction. Mm -hmm. And that went to the appellate division, and I argued it there, and then that case eventually made its way up to the, it, it, there was a 440 at the trial level as well. So oh, I did that. What's a 440, I'm sorry. Sure, a 440 is, it's it's for stuff outside the record where they're they're bringing up either new evidence or potentially claims of ineffective assistance of counsel or stuff that can't be determined on the record so it's not through a direct appeal you have to make a record below oh. and then you make a record after the trial of things that have come up oh. and then that can be appealed so oh. took that to the appellate division and that eventually made its way up to the court of appeals and I argued it there. So I took this case, you know, basically from, you know, I, I was second chair at the trial uh -huh. level all the way up to arguing it at the Court of Appeals. So. Wow. So you yeah. really knew that case inside and out. Yeah. Um, and actually the way that case went, the attorney on that case, it, it, it ended up being an ineffective assistance of counsel claim. So I ended up essentially defending the defense attorney's wow. representation. <laughs> and the defense attorney had passed away by then. So I, you know, I was, I was grateful that I was actually at the trial because I understood more by actually being there and actually seeing the attorney in action. Obviously, you can't interview him anymore, so right. it, it's been quite an experience. Wow! So th now that's a really unusual 
position to have to take, right? And I guess that's what you mean by a novel issue. Yeah, I mean, in this particular, I mean, ineffective assistance of counsel claims come all the time. That that in itself is not a novel issue because, you know, a defendant, one way they can attack it, uh-huh. and there's, in New York State, there's no time bar on 440, so even long after, could even be decades after, they can make an ineffective claim or some other claim. Really? Yeah, that's sort of a quirk. But the novel issue about this particular ineffective claim was how it kind of developed. And, and you know, without getting too into the weeds with it, uh-huh. basically the claim was that this particular attorney got new information at trial that should have made him try to reopen the suppression hearing. He didn't. And so he was saying, the defendant was saying, that was ineffective because he would have won the suppression hearing. So I had to come along and say, no, it wasn't ineffective. He wouldn't have won the suppression hearing. The information he got wasn't, you know, wasn't, um, wasn't really going to change anything. And more to the point, he had a strategy for not opening it up. Because if he had opened it up, he would have enabled the prosecutor to attack him in all sorts of other different ways. So he made a strategic call. And, you know, to a certain extent... I like I said I couldn't interview the that defense attorney so I had to sort of defend him by putting myself in his shoes and asking well what could this have meant oh, you know that's very interesting yeah, yeah. I, it, to me that that part is unusual where the prosecutor is stepping into the defense counsel's shoes for those people who might not be lawyers listening to this what is a suppression hearing oh, okay sorry no, that's okay <laughs> so um, so a suppression hearing since uh, I do ex- exclusively criminal law except for Uh my teaching but a suppression hearing is you know you get arrested things happen evidence is collected Mm -hmm. perhaps you give statements to the police perhaps you know identifications may be made things like that all the kinds of things have to follow procedures Mm -hmm. that are set forth in the constitution or by statute and when they don't follow those procedures, they can potentially be suppressed, which means we don't, we as the prosecution don't get to use those at trial. Ah. So our case gets weakened, and that's for that's for good reason. Some of it's deterrent. You know, we don't want, you know, statements, custodial statements during an interrogation to be taken without Miranda. We just don't, you know, right. we we don't do that. So you know, he makes a full confession, but he was supposed to be given Miranda. Sorry, we don't get to use that. Right. And for those people who love to watch Law and Order, Miranda, is that saying that everybody, the police officer is supposed to give them if they're in custody, right? It's you. It's have what the right you don't want to hear. Silent, yes. right? <laughs> it's what you don't want to hear because it means you're in trouble. Yeah, you, have, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Um, if you can't afford one, one will be given. All those sorts of different things. All those things that, that you know, you have to, you have to understand and mm-hmm. be told this and understand it. Um, in order to waive it by giving a statement. Uh, and criminal law is very procedural, right? There, there are a lot of different things you have to do to make sure that defendants are given kind of every uh, available chance, you know, as their, you know, as their case is sort of developing, right? That's right. I mean, you know, it's you, you want it to be, uh, you know, a, a fair, you know, the, the, the quote that's most often talked mm-hmm. about is prosecutors are allowed to strike hard blows, but fair blows. Hmm. So, Interesting. It, it, yeah, so, the, I mean, that's, that's, that's sort of our mandate. Our mandate is to do justice and to right. do the right thing, but justice 
doesn't mean you know an underhanded tactic or a tactic that violates a person's rights. Mm. Even if that results in an acquittal, we we don't we don't go that way. We can't right. go that way because right. then the system is undermined. And that that's a really good point, and I think that's um, important. That's not necessarily something that comes through when somebody's watching a TV show. It's you know there's a lot of subtlety that goes on, and you know maybe those are the kind of boring parts that you know that they cut out, you know, because there's a lot of work behind the scenes. Sure. But, Although I'll say I I, I I did see one Law and Order mm-hmm. scene, which was um, showed to us at a CLE. Uh-huh. Um, I wasn't familiar with the episode itself, but it was where. Um, prosecutor, uh, fictional prosecutor was, the cop was saying, well, this is how the traffic stop happened, and this Uh is how I discovered the contraband or whatever in the person's trunk. And the prosecutor said something like, I don't think that's how it actually happened. He's talking to the cop. I think the way it actually happened was, you know, first you saw this, and then the defendant did that. And then after that, that's why you went into the trunk and blah, blah, blah. Isn't that the way it happened? And then, you know, which of course is is totally unethical and witnessed and everything, <laughs> right. and everything else. But you do you, you do see those issues sometimes on TV. Uh-huh. But what was also great about that was um, when you saw it on Law and Order. Yeah, the cop gets on the stand and then does this sort of lying on the stand about what happened, and the defense attorney just kills her on cross oh. um, because it just doesn't stand up. I mean, and right. the lesson there, of course, is not only is it unethical and it's also bad practice right you know because it's you know, there goes your case the, if, yeah yeah so <laughs> that's interesting and actually this was something we were chatting about before you know the show but you talked about how you used to be you know a couple of years ago you used to be on 24-hour calls so you were actually at the scene when it right is that, that yeah correct? so part of part of um duties of, and you do see this in law and order sometimes, mm-hmm. is that, you know, oftentimes prosecutors will have kind of layers of duties. Mm-hmm. Like you'll be, you'll have your, your normal caseload or whatever you're working on, right. but, you know, things don't stop just because you want to work on your, your own particular case. <laughs> right. So, so there's things going on and we all have to take, take our turns sort of uh, being on call for those things, much like a doctor is on oh. call for emergencies. Yeah. So there are emergency things that need to happen. Emergency search warrants or arrest warrants need to be sworn out or subpoenas need to be given or, you know, you may have to go to a scene if it's, uh, you know, a homicide or, mm-hmm. or something like that to, to take statements or oh. get the lay of the land and issue a report or memorandum. I mean, these are all just sort of pretty sure every bureau, uh, excuse me, every borough does it. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. That, that was interesting to hear. I guess I've always thought of, you know, that need to be there to get warrants and things like that or to get the judge on the phone for something to go, to go into a oh, house. Oh, I wish but... we could just get the judge on oh. the phone. <laughs> okay. No, I would actually have, you know, in, in, in warrants, like, yeah. um, I, I don't, I, I, I mean, I would make appearances, you know, sometimes you would wait wow. hours to see a judge because right. they were doing arraignments or, or whatnot. Yeah. I, yeah, but I guess the part I didn't realize was that I always picture, and this is because I've watched a lot of TV, is that um, the detectives, you know, from the police are on the scene, but I didn't realize that you would also maybe have a district attorney also at the scene taking statements. That that's kind of surprised me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's whatever office you're in, their policy. There's, It's not like there's anything under law that would require us oh. to be at at uh, at some of these places, it's uh-huh. it's just it just enables you to get a head start on the case, oh, and I to see. get information while it's still fresh. Because right. at that point, 
you're still in the investigatory stage. Right. So um, you're you know you're still trying to figure out what happened, mm -hmm. and it's it's very important to preserve it while it's fresh. And and right. being someone from appeals, I can say that you know sometimes I've had cases that are decades old that wow. we're going back and looking at for whatever reason, maybe a recanting witness or maybe new evidence or whatever. And sometimes. I'll go all the way back to that first homicide memo or that first whatever of the yeah. person on the scene to corroborate something, to undercut something, to you know, because that's when it's extremely fresh. Right, right. Well, yeah, I think that's something that also surprises people is how long a case can go on. I guess even a criminal case. I'm used to thinking of that with civil cases because that's what I primarily practiced in when I was a prosecutor. But, you know, the fact that even a criminal case can last you know, can sort of go on and on, you know, is, is interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people sort of, um, you know, professionals too, kind of have it in their mind that, you know, okay, there's a conviction, the case is over, you know, the jury has spoken and that's it. And maybe they <laughs> yeah. get some sort of token appeals process and, mm -hmm. and that's, that's not how it works at all. Actually, once the conviction happens, there's, yeah. in, New, in New York, I mean, there there is a, just a, buffet of, of options to go forward. And, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times you'll see a defendant take every single one of them. Every, you know, you can immediately file a 330-30 motion to set aside the verdict. Oh. Then from there, you get a direct appeal as of right based on the record. You can file a 440-10 motion to vacate the judgment based on new evidence or ineffective or all sorts of things at any time. It can be decades and decades later, which is how a lot of these sort of um, conviction integrity cases are, are coming about now in Brooklyn and elsewhere is where they're saying, no, we found that this particular detective was dirty or whatever, oh. so we're moving to vacate the judgment. This is new evidence. Oh. That can come around at any time. There's the federal hate. I'm sorry. I don't mean. I I could wax poetic. No, for a no. Long time. I love it. I love it. What I was going to ask is more of a a question for um, you know somebody listening. You know, is um, when you've set aside the judgment, is that the same thing as an acquittal, or is that a different thing? So it depends. <laughs> here, uh, okay. here, here's the lawyer answer. <laughs> lawyer it answer. It yeah. depends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if it's a 440, let's say, which is a collateral attack. Okay. Again, I I don't want to get too. I don't mean to get too procedural, but no, um, 440.10 would be uh -huh. setting aside the judgment. Okay. And that essentially returns the case to pre-trial status. Oh. But there are other remedies. You could get dismissal of the indictment, which means that you're, there's no more indictment anymore. Huh. You could get a 440.20, which is just the sentence is set aside because the yeah. sentence was illegal, but the conviction is still there. So. Wow. The judgment, which is the conviction plus the sentence, uh -huh. we just have to repair the sentence part of it. Oh. You could get, you know, all sorts of different things. You could get, mm -hmm. so I mean, it, it, it really, it, it's not the same necessarily as an acquittal, uh -huh. but you could have the net effect of wiping it off your criminal record, um, depending on how it plays out. Interesting. Now, if you have the judgment set aside. Could a new trial be brought, or is that once you're done, you're done with something like that? Barring something like a double jeopardy problem, a new trial could be brought if the conviction is just set aside, like uh -huh. on a 440. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean it will be because there's certain practical considerations. You know, 
do we still have the witnesses? Are they still willing? How is the evidence still good? Do mm-hmm. we do we think we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt at this stage? Right. Do we even want to go forward? Um, which is sort of the threshold inquiry because maybe if there was some merit to this 440, mm-hmm. which you know there have been times where where we have agreed with the you know yes the evidence you've come forward with has cast this into doubt you know and we won't we won't retry it you know interesting so um, as as I've been told since day one you know it's all case by case yeah. So. Yeah, the, the the like you said, the old lawyer adage. You know, it yeah. depends. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a cop out in some ways, but mm. but when you use it in terms of it's case by case, it's really not a cop out because yeah. I'm not saying it depends to avoid the question. I'm saying right. it to actually answer the question. So, right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Now this is something I know I, I had to debate with. I had to debate with my lawyer friend, non lawyer friends. What is the difference between innocent and not guilty? Or is there a difference? There is a difference. Not guilty means that the people have not met their burden of proof. Okay. So it doesn't mean that I, Joe Defendant, didn't do it. Mm -hmm. It means that at trial the people were unable to meet their burden of proof. That's a good explanation. Yeah. You know, for example, maybe my evidence got suppressed like we were talking about Ah, earlier. Okay. Or maybe the jury just, you know... The jury just came out with a verdict that that you know they didn't believe my witness or or right. whatever, right. you know. But that doesn't mean that I that I'm innocent that I didn't do it, which is which is very important because in this day and age, both at the federal and state level, the concept of actual innocence mm-hmm. has legal implications. So if if you can prove that you're actually innocent, uh-huh. you get certain procedures that don't normally apply. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. Certain gateways into, especially at the federal level, too. Mm-hmm. Actual innocence provide, you know, eliminate certain time bars and other things that you would have oh. had to make claims. And actual innocence, again, as a prosecutor, uh-huh. our, our first job is to do justice. So if we right. think somebody's actually innocent, mm-hmm. I mean, it would be, it would be, I think, immoral to, to say, well, we, we we right. think there should be some sort of procedural impediment to keep him in jail. We think the guy's innocent, right. you know. Like we have, we have good reason to think mm-hmm. that, you know. Yeah. But that's a rare case. Not not guilty is is different. Oh. Well, interesting. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot that yeah you don't you don't realize um, unless you're even in that little you know area of practice. Even for other lawyers, I find you know we you know we're so enmeshed in our own practice. We mm-hmm. don't. We know a little bit about other areas, but we we don't know so much about what you do. And of course, everybody's always interested in criminal law. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll say one other thing about innocence too. It, sure. It's a defense attorney, as I said, doesn't have to prove their client is innocent right. in order to win, right. because they they just have to say those guys, the prosecution, mm-hmm. didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, maybe they proved fifty one percent. Maybe they proved. 60%, but they didn't prove beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a very high threshold. Right. So a lot of times you'll see defense attorneys making arguments that say, yeah, my guy was on the scene, and, mm-hmm. and yeah, you know, certain things don't look good. I have to acknowledge that. But hey, they still didn't meet their, they didn't establish that my guy did exactly what they said he right. did, you know. And, right. Or if you don't, you know, or you can believe my guy is totally innocent, or you can believe that theory. So I'm giving you both theories, both ways, Jerry, for you to come out the way I want you to. Right. So it's difficult. Yeah. And it's it's also interesting when you see you know the difference between a civil trial and a criminal trial for the same 
conduct. Mm-hmm. You know, I often find, you know, I, and I think I told you I was a civil prosecutor mm-hmm. early on in my career. And so it was confusing, I think, to, to people who, you know, we prosecuted because they kept thinking it was criminal. Mm. It was like criminal securities fraud, yeah. which was not the case. But for civil securities fraud, it was very different in terms of the standard of evidence. It was a much sure. lower bar than, you know, we, I think it was preponderance of the evidence or something like that, mm-hmm. which is more reasonable than not. Right, you know, which is a very different standard, and it, again, it's it's a little difficult concept to explain to a non-lawyer. But it's basically you don't have to have everything all in your favor to prove it. It just mm-hmm. has to be, you know, more. Re- you really think that they probably did it, but yeah. there can be some doubt, sure, you know, left over. And I think it's a it's an important distinction for people understanding the difference between civil and criminal for the same conduct. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, convictions uh, on a criminal level, they mean a lot, you know, in terms of your liberty interests and your record and everything else. They have huge implications, Mm -hmm. which is why there's this huge standard um, and why there's, you know, even grand jury procedures that we can't, you know, we can't. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working on a case now that deals with um, whether or not the proper procedure was followed in in the grand jury. And and that's important because even just charging somebody Mm -hmm. has implications. But yeah, and, and, you know, that's why when we get a conviction that we believe in at the appellate level, we try really hard to protect that conviction. If we, if we believe in it, you know, obviously if we don't think that there's like a, an an innocence problem or something like that, or, or some sort of unfairness, but because they're so they're so hard to get. They're not. They're not. Right. They don't just come for the asking. Right. So. Right. So now to pivot a little bit, um, mm. you have an interesting background, <laughs> and I know you you came to law after doing a, a fairly different sort of career. So I'd love yeah. to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so I went to college and uh, here in the city, mm-hmm. and. I, I started a band with my brother, and... What's the name of the band? The Negatones. <laughs> I um, love it. <laughs> thank you. Um, and, and we were playing around a lot, and I decided, you know, after college that uh, I was going to work in a record store and be a musician. Yeah. So, <laughs> like high Full time. Yeah, so that was, that, was, that was sort of what I did at the time. My brother and I were kind of assembling, slowly assembling an arsenal of musical gear, to record ourselves and we eventually opened up a little place on the Lower East Side and started recording other people. Oh, how cool. Yeah, that was fun and that that got moved to Brooklyn and um, so and then, you know, I found myself doing that more and more so that was sort of what I did was and then we transitioned from analog to digital and and I was finding myself doing Pro Tools and I briefly worked for WNYC doing, putting together newscasts and so uh, on their Pro Tools system. So, you know, I, I was I was a sound engineer. You know, that that was kind of what I did, and yeah. my brother was doing that and production. Yeah. And you know, after after a period of time, we were pushing the band hard, and we had some some interest from uh, mm-hmm. from different labels and stuff. And In my, fact, I think there's a whole Wikipedia page on you guys. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it was good, and we had like some good college radio play. Um, at the time, we had actually a lawyer representing us, and he oh. said, "My." He knew I was thinking about law school, and he said, "My goal is to keep you out of law school." <laughs> and um, you know, doing music. Yeah, I ended up having great experiences. I, I went on some tours with some, like to Europe, and with some, with wow. uh, with some uh, some signed people as like a fill-in bass player. And and you know, I thought that's where my life could be going. Yeah. But after a while, 
ha- my father's a lawyer, and I, I thought I could be good at it. So I, I applied anyway, got in, deferred for a year. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, the day I started, I was, I was also at that time angling to try to get the job working for WNYC because uh. I thought I could also do that. Right. And they just were dragging their feet, calling me back. And my first day of law school, they called me and they said, do you want a full-time job? Oh, jeez. <laughs> And I said, you're a little bit late. Yeah. <laughs> and they said, okay, do you want a part-time job? Uh-huh. And I said, okay. So I ended, up doing, um, I ended up doing part-time work for them while I was going to law school. Oh, so, oh cool. Yeah. So you continued the, the interest in, in sound editing, engineering, excuse me. Yeah, and, yeah. And cool. so I still, you know, I still do little bits here and there, but nothing, nothing, nothing like I was doing. Oh, yeah. But it, at the same time, you told me that your training comes in handy with your sound engineering. I remember you were telling me about a trial where you were able to use that. Sure. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's more just in terms of thinking because there's, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody says thinking like a lawyer, and I think that that's true. Yes. And I tell my, my, my students this, who I teach um, legal writing to all the time, but there's also there other kinds of thinking that you bring in from other areas of mm-hmm. your life. And, and Absolutely. Yeah, and one thing that, that engineering taught me was sort of how to edit and how to pull things together and how to mm-hmm. make things understandable and cohesive in, in, in a presentation format. Mm-hmm. Presentation being sound, but that translates very easily into video and other mm-hmm. things like that. And um, so we had a trial where we had um, very disparate clips of surveillance video. Mm-hmm that were taken from different cameras at different times, mm-hmm. and you, you could watch it. They're all time-stamped, yeah. so you could watch it, and you can, but it was very hard to put it together in mm-hmm. your mind, sort of how these things were happening. So you'll see, you see something, you're like, okay, that's happening, but how does that relate to this other thing? Right. So um, you know, myself and the prosecutor who was working on it talked about what we should do, and I said, I, I think I have an idea. Mm-hmm. So what we did was, I, you, you know, we put it, we put it all together. Yeah. Like we put that we had video coming on and off in different corners of a screen. So rather than just hmm. one screen of one video, I, I said let, let let's make it into like a, almost like a panel where um, you know the video will all be video that's slave to a certain time will all be slave to that time. Oh. And when it pops up, it pops up, and when it pops out, it pops out. But this way, you can see everything in real time and that your mind will be able to put together the different angles because it'll all stay with you know within that screen that bigger screen that has the different angles put together and if it co- comes on and off that's okay um, and it worked out very well so you know there were times where you would be seeing three different parts of the building at once but this was what was all going on at the same time and there were other times where you'd only see one thing because that was the other thing the surveillance video was motion sensitive so that's why things were coming on. I don't know if I've explained that very well. No, but I, I have a pretty good sense. I think that was a very smart way of doing it. Was well, and it's straight out of audio engineering because that happens all the time. Is you know you have your your instruments coming in and out, and your vocals coming in and out, and you have to sort of blend it together as you're making a mix. So you know, it was very easy. To, that was that's just sort of one example, but yeah. um, but that's sort of the most visceral one. Oh, no, so. I, I love it, and I think that's a perfect illustration of how you used your, your prior background and form your, your legal experience. Yeah. And a very creative way of doing it. Yeah, I mean, um, that, that, was a, that was definitely a sad case, but it, it, was, um, it, was, a, it was an effective presentation, I think. Mm. So. Can I ask what the case was about? 
Um, the case was a uh, it was a, a perjury case, which mm. is rare, but involving law enforcement. So, oh. um, you know, law enforcement person said to a grand jury, "This is how I came about getting the evidence." Mm-hmm. Much later, surveillance video surfaced showing that it didn't happen that way at all. And, you know, in the meantime, people had gone to jail and et cetera, et cetera. Um, So, you know, once the video surfaced, Mm -hmm. she got charged with perjury. And um, she had to explain why she said this, but the video shows that. Right, right. You know, and it's, it's, you know, that's a a hard spot for a prosecutor because, you know, we... We, we know the kind of job police officers and other law enforcement mm-hmm. do and how they put their lives on the line and, you know, right. how it's dangerous and difficult and everything else. But yeah. then you're faced with a case like that where it's just sort of, again, like the process is being subverted and, mm-hmm. and you have to stand up for the process and you have right. to stand up for people's rights, you know, who they should have never been in jail, even though they may have had whatever, contraband or whatever. Right. Right. We wouldn't have been able to prove it because we never, it never, it didn't go down the way it went down. Right. Otherwise, you because you, you want there to be credibility to the due pro, to due process. Right. right. I mean, it, yeah. it, and it would be you know it, part of part of being a watch a watchdog is is watching the other watchdogs. Yes. So, yes. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. You know, bec- so that's yeah. that's that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. So interesting case, and yeah, like you said, sad case. So on a more uplifting note, mm-hmm. you've mentioned a couple times that you also teach, and you teach legal writing. So tell me a little bit about that and how you got into that. Sure. Well, I mean, after after spending many, you know, several years in the DA's office in appeals, you know, where I do tons of writing, argument mm-hmm. before the appellate division and, yeah. and um, you know, all the other appellate courts, it got me thinking about my own experience in law school where we would visit the appellate division where I was first learning to write, first learning to argue, mm-hmm. or, orally argue. And I thought, you know, well, maybe, you know, as a practitioner, this might be, this might be something I could do. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I got in touch with an old professor of mine who remembered uh-huh. me, who's, who's in charge of the program. And she said, well, we don't really have any vacancies at the moment. But, you know, I persisted. <laughs> and I said, okay, you know, can I write next year? Yeah, sure, write next year. And so, and so eventually I got an interview. And it was one of those interviews that I, that I felt in my gut went very well. Yeah. And uh, I got the job. And my first year was really hard, as it is for a lot of teachers, <laughs> professors. You know, sure. uh, I wasn't sure that I, that I had bitten off what I could chew. Uh-huh. But then after that, I started to get my, my sea legs a little bit, and it's been a great experience. Yeah, and I'm sure it's nice feeling like you're a mentor to upcoming law students. And yeah, that's the best part. That's, yeah. that's, that's, you know, because you watch people go from, because uh, my, actually my father I mentioned was a lawyer too. That's right. So we, um, before I went to law school, he started working with me on, on, his old torts book from many years ago and uh, and sort of getting uh, me kind of like in shape because I had been out of school for whatever, six, seven years. Right. And he, he said, you know, your your brain went from being really mushy to, to thinking like a lawyer. <laughs> so, but right. that's, but, but that's kind of true. It's like you watch people when they first enter law school yeah. and um, the way you argue with a spouse or a mm, friend or yes. something like that. Very true. Or the way you put together, our, you know, 
very different than than how you end up. Right. Right. Just, There's a big, I guess, emphasis on logic and process and marshalling your arguments and the evidence where and audience too. I think and audience. Yeah. Agreed. So it's I very mean, important. yeah, I think that um, you know, if you're dealing with somebody who you're you're close to and you know very very well, you know. You may not even care if you convince them. You know, you may just want to, you may just want to get your pound of flesh and move yeah. on. <laughs> but, but that doesn't work so well when you're in front of a tribunal and you're desperately trying to say, no, 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 this is the way. This this makes sense. Do it right. do it this way. Right, right. Well, I mean, it all comes down to being persuasive, right? I mean, it's right. not just arguing for the sake of arguing, but arguing to persuade. Right, right. Because I mean, judges have. You know, and that's a big thing I talk to my students about is, you know, judges see a lot of arguments, they see a lot of lawyers, they see a lot Absolutely. of styles. Like you're not going to you're not gonna mesmerize them un unless you have some super talent, you know, innate talent. You know, you, you have to focus on what you have. Right. And you have to do it with integrity and you you know, sell it with your credibility mm -hmm. and you have to do it, you know, in a way that makes that's again, hard blows but fair blows, you know. Right. It's it's right. I think it's important. Absolutely. Yeah, you don't want to be I think there's the expression if you uh, if you have the law, argue the law. <laughs> if you have the facts, argue the facts. If you don't have either of them, then you pound the table, right? That's but you right. don't want to be pounding the table. <laughs> I just think it's very transparent when people are doing that. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to the appellate division. I've been like, I've looked, because I, I watch other people, other lawyers, and I say, yeah. well, that person really knows what they're doing. They're prepared. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're persuasive. They're giving ground when they have to give ground, mm -hmm. but they're holding their, they're their guns. Yeah. And then someone else gets up there, and you say, Oh my God, that person's a trial lawyer because <laughs> they're just trying to persuade a jury, you know, with with a motion or this or that, right. and and it's just the judges are completely unimpressed. Oh yeah, yeah, know, yeah. So. You can't have style over substance when you're. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, even even you know a lay jury knows too. You know, everybody there there may be some element of persuasion, but if there's nothing underlying it, mo most people see through it. I think yeah. lawyers are not. So. Um, you know, with your students, have you found a lot of them say, oh, I really want to become a DA now because you've been my teacher? Some of them, yeah. you know, um, some of them do and some of them, you know, well, that's the thing is when I went to law school, mm -hmm. I actually had no idea what I wanted to be. Some people do go to law school and say, I want to be a prosecutor. Or right. I want to be this or that. Right. I spent a lot of time doing mediation and ADR and other things. Yeah. And I thought that's where I was going to end up until I realized the job market for that was was terrible. <laughs> so I, um, yeah. you know, I thought about something else, and I spoke to my career counselor, who who said, you know, because I said, well, maybe I maybe I could do something that also enables me to have a life, like maybe, you know, criminal law seems interesting, and this yeah. that, and they they I saw, you know, I could see myself as maybe a defense attorney. Mm -hmm. and they said, well, mm -hmm. your your resume screams prosecutor because oh. I. Intern for a prosecutor. I'd worked oh. for a couple of judges. Yeah. So I said, okay, I'll give I'll give that a try. And I'm I'm glad it doesn't. I guess what I'm saying is, for my students, mm -hmm. some of them I see very much going like I want to be a prosecutor, yeah. and that's okay. Yeah. I yeah. You know, and I want to be Perry Mason. Yeah, and <laughs> and other students just want to figure out what they want to be. Yeah. So yeah, I agree. I think it's it's not so bad to go to law school. 
you know, not knowing what you want to be when you grow up, <laughs> yeah. you know, so to speak. Because you don't, you don't know till you try some of these different areas. Yeah, although it's tricky because the job market's tightened significantly. That's true. So, so yeah, so, I mean, when somebody's coming into an interview mm-hmm. and they've got, you know, criminal defense clinic, uh, work for a prosecutor, work for a defense attorney, mm-hmm. work for a bunch of judges, blah, 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 and then someone else comes in and has, like, all civil stuff. Right. And they're all, they're both applying for uh, a, well, a government prosecutor yeah. job. I mean, it's 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 sort of like, well, why? Yeah. You know, so no, it's that's tricky. also a good point. Yeah, yeah. It's more, I guess, in the beginning, you don't necessarily need to know as as right. much. But yeah, once you know, you should probably focus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, yeah. it's just it's. I mean, for me, I feel like I got lucky because I feel yeah. like in this job market, I'm not sure. I'm yeah. not sure. So, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, it's, you know, you never know whether it's, you know, you're in the private sector, the government sector. I mean, everybody always needs a lawyer, so it seems. But, yeah. you know, that doesn't mean that it's not easy way out like some people might think it is. Sure. Going into law. Sure. Yeah, and, and my father, I mean, he was a commercial, he is a commercial attorney, so very different than what I do. Yeah. I had a professor in law school say to me, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to push papers around, your, you know, your whole <laughs> career, or blah, 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 blah. So I, I kind of like that resonated with me, although I think that that's an unfair generalization, yeah. but, you know. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a wide open field. And then I, you know, I briefly toyed with doing music law or maybe environmental oh, right, law. right. Or maybe my brother and I are both deeply concerned with animals, maybe animal law. Oh. Although that was, um, that's tricky because that's, that's maybe a little bit too close to home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, if you're doing animal law, then, then you, like, you hear about these animals being mistreated. Sure, if you're I, an emotional person, that's, that's tough, well, I think. We, we, we handle animal abuse cases here. Do and you? They're tough, yeah. Yeah. And, ch- and child abuse cases. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Those are those are like the toughest cases. Very much to, so. To well, prosecute. I mean, yeah, it, they are. They're they're very tough. Yeah, because it's you know the the more vulnerable the victim is, the I think the harder it is to look at that evidence and, and see what happened if there are photos and things like that. I I think you really have to. It's really brave to do it, and it's um, and I guess you have to. Sounds like you have to develop a little bit of a tough shell to. To do that. Yeah, there's some people who do it every day, and I, do, you know, kudos to them. I yeah. don't think I could. And then there's cases where, you know, maybe it'll touch like uh, a sensitive subject that's mm-hmm. maybe politically sensitive. You know, people have different opinions about drug legalization, people have different right. opinions about immigration. Right. Um, and, right. you know, in the criminal context, that's a huge thing now because, yeah. you know, we're not, our office doesn't deport anybody. But as a result of convictions that our office prosecutes, uh-huh. people can get deported. Right, that's so, true. So yeah. there's like so now so now that brings a whole other dimension that we have to think about. Right. Um, so it's you know there's a lot there. <laughs> there definitely is. There yeah. definitely is. So so now on to my favorite question of every interview. <laughs> um, you know, I always say, you know, they should have called it entering the bar, not passing the bar, you know, because everybody, you know, uh, lawyers like to drink a little bit. Do you have any funny stories or a favorite bar you used to go to in law school? Or Yeah, I, I, I knew this question was coming. So I, <laughs> He was smiling when I, I asked this. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought about it a little bit. Um, so... Um, as 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 I guess a typical lawyer, I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly deflect. <laughs> so <That's okay. laughs> um, I thought about this, and I I I do have some interesting um, 
bar-related stories, but, but one story that came to mind is, mm -hmm. it's, it's close to alcohol, but not quite, but it was uh -huh. a story my old torts professor told us. Okay. She was, um, she was uh, you know, one of, I think, probably, I, I would say, she, I, I, yeah, she was definitely among the first generation of, of prominent women lawyers. Oh. Yeah, so she, she told us that, you know, when she was coming up through law school, uh -huh. that they had a, a big jar of stuff in her in her law review, nobody quite knew what it was, and it was just it was pills, huh. but but nobody knew what it was. This was way back in whatever, the, I don't know, fifties or the sixties, yeah. and you know people would just it was just sort of you would just put your handful and take some and like go off on your merry way, and that was just like part of being in law review, and it it was it was speed, it was all speed. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh my god! So, <laughs> and, and, and that's that story really stuck with me because I, you know, I just, you know, I thought about that and I was like, that well, that wouldn't work for me <laughs> for for many many reasons. Yeah. But oh um, but what a typical lawyer story, you know? Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that goes even beyond what I would picture, you know? <laughs> especially back then. You it was know? just sort of it was like candy. It was just out there for wow. people. Yeah. Wow. And so. Um, Oh my god! And she had kind of a grin on her face when she told it. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, a different kind of bar, but yes, entering yes, the bar. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. That's a great story, though. Good. Um, so a uh, note to all of you in law school: don't do that. Yes, no, I don't recommend it. <laughs> we don't endorse drugs on this on this podcast. You know, nothing illegal. <laughs> no, but you can certainly see back in the day. You know. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, pulling all-nighters, you yeah. know, to, to get your papers done. But, uh, yeah, yeah. wow, that is, um, I think of the 70s, you know, the uppers and the downers and stuff, you know. Yeah, but yeah. that's that even predates that. That's, yeah. that's pretty crazy. Yeah, and, no, and my favorite part was nobody really knew what it was until much later. That's <laughs> 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 Hindsight is uh, 2020, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so. so, well, this has been great. So any, any parting words of advice for, for young lawyers? That's so tricky. Uh, <laughs> I'm okay. sorry. No, no, no. no. I, I think no, you I, 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 of advice. <laughs> I, won't, I won't cop out. Um, so my advice would be, um, you know, without sounding too cliche, uh -huh. um, I really do think that your your success is going to turn on two things. It's going to turn on your integrity mm -hmm. and your preparation, really. I mean, it, it always does. It's those yeah. two things. If your integrity is lacking, you're going to have a hard time being persuasive. And even when you are persuasive, all of it's going to come crumbling down like a house of cards. Yeah. And you're, And I also think you're going to do less good work because you're not, you're not integrated in yourself. And then as far as preparation goes, you know, it's, it's the old cliche. They, they, there are defense attorneys who are really good. And why are they so good? Because they know their case better than the prosecutor. Mm. As a prosecutor, I would never want to be in that situation. Because, <laughs> and that's, that's a result of preparation. Yes. But, you know, I think that's what I would say. All right. Well, sage <laughs> words of advice from Justin Braun. So, Justin, it was an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Same here. And uh, thank you for coming on. And you've been listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. And that's a wrap. You can always check us out at enteringthebar.com. As a reminder, all opinions on this show are made in our personal capacity and don't reflect the views of our employers. 
Many thanks to those who have provided use of their work through the Creative Commons licenses. This episode has featured No Peddler Song, Ruthini and Kolmaja from their album Corn Smugglers, and sounds from freesound.org with thanks to users Escort Marius, B.H. Weber, and Leander Stat and Tunis. You've been listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash. Mm-hmm.